Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hi, uh, my name is Wilson Tang. I'm a staff cardiologist at the Heart and Vascular Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, today we have our tall rounds uh, that is involved heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, old challenges, and new advances. This is a hot topic. Uh, there has been a wide range of uh, research and clinical activities related to this really challenging clinical conditions. And today we talked about the, the new insights in phenomapping, understanding the different subclasses of heart failure preserved ejection fraction, diagnostic evaluation, uh, particularly in terms of exercise testing and advanced imaging, as well as some really innovative uh, therapeutic approaches, particularly with drugs, devices, and new devices that are in the horizon. I invite you to watch it, and, and thank you. Good morning. I'm Sanjeev Bhattacharya, one of the new heart failure staff. And I'm going to talk about defining subtypes of HEFPEF with phenomapping. So for just a quick objectives, kind of a brief overview, very brief overview of HEFPEF. Uh, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about phenomapping and then the use of phenomapping in the HEFPEF population. So looking at HEFPEF, the prevalence has been increasing in terms of hospitalizations. This is looking at the Get With The Guideline registry, and it shows that the incidence of hospitalizations for HEFPEF has been rising. Um, and this was actually published in 2010, and looking at the trajectory, they thought that it was over, actually going to overtake HEFREF in 2020. There's some epidemiologic data that shows that the actual hospitalization rates are about the same, but still elevated fairly high. And survival uh, by age is still fairly poor. So red is looking at life expectancy for normal individuals in that age range, and then looking at HEF-REF in blue, the borderline EFs in orange, and then the gray HEF are the HEF-PEF patients. And you see this actual age and year survival is actually pretty low looking at the decades or the, um, the age gaps. And then in terms of outcomes with HEFPEF trials, we all know that all the trials have been fairly negative looking at drugs and interventions looking at HEFPEF, not really moving the needle in terms of survival, um, maybe some uh, signals for reduced hospitalizations, but nothing that's been really a game changer in the HEFPEF population. And why is that? It's because it's a very complex pathophysiology, initially thought mainly driven by hypertension, but we know now that this is a sort of a constellation looking at the lungs, heart, liver, adipose tissue, kidneys, uh, metabolic issues like diabetes, all leading to milieu uh, causing this um, actual presentation of HEFP. So looking at phenomapping, the thought was is putting everyone in these clinical trials for HEFPEF hasn't really shown anything. And maybe the problem is is not every HEFPEF patient is the same. So how do we further delineate? Um, well, some of it is using machine learning. So actually, Sanjeev Shah over at Northwestern back in 2007 started a registry um, at Northwestern of HEFPEF patients in their clinic. They followed about 400 patients longitudinally, and they looked at various markers, looking at biomarkers, ECG data, and echocardiographic data. And with machine learning, analyzing these large data sets to see if there's any sort of underlying pervasive themes or patterns that might further sort of subtype these patients a little bit further. 
and they looked at a lot of variables. So this is a, uh, a heat map looking, and actually across the top, these are the actual patients that were analyzed in the in the registry. And then uh, going down in the rows, these are actual um, variables they were looking at. And you can see it's looking at QRS, at GFR, some lab values, and echocardiographic sort of data as well. And what they found is using phenomapping, they were able to find three subgroups patients in their clinic. Um, the phenogroup 1 showed the BMP deficiency syndrome, um, which showed the least cardiac remodeling, lowest BMP levels. Phenogroup 2 is the obesity cardiometabolic uh, phenotype, um, which had the most severely impaired relaxation, a lot of heart failure hospitalizations, high prevalence of diabetes. And then the phenogroup 3, which had the worst outcomes, which we'll look at the next table, um, had a lot of cardiorenal issues, RV failure, pulmonary hypertension. And looking at this, he then looked at Kaplan-Meier curve, and he showed that that group 3, RV failure, um, uh, cardiorenal syndrome, had the worst outcomes. And then group 1, phenogroup uh, pheno 1, uh, which had the least cardiac remodeling, did the best of all three, but still had a lot of incidents for uh, survival for uh, survival free from CV hospitalizations or death. So this is just looking at one data set from one institution. There has been a lot of validation of this, most recently coming from the group of uh, from UT Southwestern, and then in particular Dr. Tang, um, which is actually just recently published in the Heart Failure Journal. Um, and what they did is it was actually pretty smart. They looked at validating. Uh, machine learning in a randomized controlled database. So they looked at TopCat, they looked at people who had echocardiographic data, people who didn't, and they also looked to externally valid uh, validate this in the RELAX trial. So looking at multi-different variables, but also looking at different subgroup of patients which are very different across the type. And with their data, they still came up with three basically phenogroup, uh, three phenogroup subtypes. Um, group three being that uh, the least cardiac remodeling, and group one having more cardiac remodeling, but also more atherosclerotic disease burden. Um, and they looked at primary endpoints, and they showed that the group one had the worst endpoints across the, across the board, looking at all-cause mortality, atherosclerotic burden, hospitalizations, and such and such. And this is just looking at cumulative incidence plot, and it just shows that phenogroup one, which had the highest degree of atherosclerotic burden, heart failure hospitalizations, did the worst across the board when it came to uh, cumulative incidence of death, uh, atherosclerotic events, heart failure hospitalizations, and everything like that. Just to briefly talk about beware of phenocopies, so the one thing we always have to be aware of are the cardiac amyloids, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, the other infiltrative restrictive cardiomyopathies that mimic HFPEF. Um, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit uh, in the next talk. Um, and then overall, what does this mean? It means leveraging phenomapping to further delineate. So in my mind, looking at phenomapping, it's to first understand the pathophysiology, break down in subtypes using phenomapping precision medicine, and then trying to do uh, targeted clinical trials on these subtypes individually to lead to more personalized medicine and maybe more per um, positive outcomes on clinical trials. And this is the hope, trying to get a therapeutic target using a tree like this. This is sort of Sanjeev Shah's um, uh, uh, thought process and the way that he subtypes, but I think having more data will be a little bit better in terms of how we treat these patients. Thank you very much. Uh, so this is uh, uh, an exciting uh, topic for the interventional cardiology also in the cath lab that uh, with Dr. Starling we are doing uh, 
some work particularly with the hemodynamics in the cath lab so the idea is that people who have mitral stenosis and Lutenbacher or you have ASD and diastolic heart failure and if you close the ASD they get worse or if you have Lutenbacher syndrome you know if you have mitral stenosis you typically do better uh, with a small ASD so there was the concept based on that that the idea was that can we create a small ASD in patients uh, with uh, HEPF or HEPREF to see if we can improve their symptoms. So this is the concept. Uh, there is a lot of, lot of information available on what exactly happens with the pressure volume curves of the left atrium as well as left ventricle uh, when you create a small ASD. Uh, the curves move, as you can see here, uh, that the patients before and after the introduction of uh, shunt, you can see that the curves move to the down and the right. So the device that is available currently are in the clinical trials. There are two devices that are in clinical trial. The Corvia device, this is the device which is very simple. You do a transeptal puncture and place a little stent into the left atrium uh, in the interatrial septum. So this device is placed, uh, as you can see, this is the device and it is placed, this is by intracardiac echo or this is, can be done with uh, uh, TEE. Uh, it is a 14 French sheath. It's very relatively simple procedure. There are several trials that have been done, small, and now we are on the pivotal trial. So the several trials that you can see, this is the reduced uh, LAP trial, reduced left atrial pressure heart failure trial. Uh, they are the one, two, and right now we are on this particular trial at uh, the pivotal trial, uh, which is a 608 patient, two trial. Uh, they have been published, uh, so again, the literature is available. This was published fairly recently in Jack, uh, looking at the effects of interatrial shunt on pulmonary vascular uh, pressures. What it shows, and see this is at rest, so this is the rest hemodynamics. So the, the trial is done fairly rigorously. So we bring the patient in the cath lab, we put them a supine, and there is an exercise bike. We have a supine exercise bike also just like Dr. Finnett showed you the, uh, the vertical bike. We have one that fits on the cath lab table. Uh, then we exercise the patient. First, we do it at baseline. Uh, and the baseline wedge pressure, as you can see, the rest pressures are very, very similar uh, before and after the uh, shunt. There is a little bit of shunt created. So the PA, PA saturation increases. And the shunt is 1.2 uh, to 1, typically, with a 7 or 8 millimeter device that we place in the uh, uh, in the heart. What happens really, which is the part that is not very 100% clear that what is the exact mechanism of this, is that exercise tolerance increases. So if you look at the exercise tolerance, so these are 75, 78 patients uh, before and after the ASD placement. So if you see that it's 7.4 minutes to 8.4 minutes, so one minute exercise tolerance is quite a bit of exercise tolerance increase. And as you can see, the hemodynamics shows that at least the RA pressure, the wedge pressure increase are not, not that different in the sense that when you, when you have the intact septum versus not intact septum, you increase your exercise tolerance without increasing your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So this is the idea that you can go a little bit further with the same amount of uh, filling pressures. Uh, and as you can see, the pulmonary flow increases. So when you exercise, actually your shunt gets a little bit worse and the pulmonary pressure increases. 
this is the concept that the idea is that if you have a little bit of more QP pulmonary shunt, pulmonary flow, uh, that recruits uh, more of the pulmonary capillaries and that decreases, increases the pulmonary compliance uh, and that improves your exercise tolerance. So this is the concept on which we are working on. And so this is the several publications uh, for this particular uh, device. And interestingly enough, it shows that you have fewer heart failure admissions, uh, fewer events which require diuretics, uh, IV diuretics dosing decreases. So all of the clinical endpoints, although small numbers, these are very, very small number of patients, uh, did show favorable outcomes. So this is the reason why we are doing the randomized trial. We have enrolled probably six or seven patients in this particular trial. But if you can see, this is a trial uh, where we exercise the patient. If the pulmonary wedge pressure increases about 25 and between the RA and the LA or the pulmonary wedge pressure, there's a five millimeter difference. There's no RV failure. So very, very, uh, very detailed exercise protocol. It takes almost an hour or hour and a half to do this procedure. And then after that, we randomize them to say that the patient is really a candidate or not. And it's a sham control trial, double-blinded trial. So Dr. Starling, for example, looking after the patient does not know that the patient really actually had a shunt or not. And then we follow the patient. So it's a very interesting uh, concept. This V-Wave is another device, uh, which is also very, very similar, interatrial shunt. Uh, and then we place the device. Uh, on both sides. Uh, there's music there, but I can turn it off. Uh, when I was capturing the thing, there was music playing on the television, I guess. So that's why <laughs> there's music. There was actually no music. Uh, but now with the PowerPoint, you can capture the screen, but it records the music. So, uh, and they also have fair number of, uh, this is also paper published in Lancet, uh, showing uh, that uh, the exercise tolerance increases and the, wave, uh, the, and the quality of life improves. There's one other device that is, uh, they're not one, but there's several devices for neuromodulation uh, in uh, HAPF patients. Uh, some of our newer recruits that we are trying to recruit in this particular field, because this is a very uh, important expanding field in heart failure is neuromo neuromodulation. And uh, we are looking in some of the young uh, colleagues to join us to particularly help us with the neuromodulation and especially uh, Wilson is uh, particularly interested in this uh, field. So this will help us uh, in general. Uh, and uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.